Is there blessing in persecution? Pastor Xavier Reese says there is in the providence of God's will and wisdom. God uses persecution to disturb the saints' comfort. Esther was in the palace. She had spent a whole year in perfume and oils, anything she wanted. All of a sudden, her comfort is disturbed. And so Esther can see only but objections, the obstacles. Whenever God disrupts my comfort, all I can see is the obstacles. That's what comfort does. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole. So, why does Scripture warn believers to be expecting fiery trials? The simple truth, says Pastor Xavier, is that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes, as promised in Romans 8.28. And no better example than what we find in our study series of the book of Esther, continuing with chapter 4 today. Let's listen. We want to look at Esther and look at how God uses persecution for His purposes. Esther, as you know, has been selected to be the queen to sit in the place of Vashti, who refused to come in before the king. Now, Esther is in position. It's years afterwards. The first thing that we see in chapter 4, from verse 1 through 3, is that God uses persecution to draw men to himself. It says, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the square in front of the king's gate, for no, no man might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. The first thing we notice is in verse 1 and 2 that Mordecai lamented because of what had taken place. He had learned that Haman, the wicked man, the enemy of the Jews, had come to power at this time, second to the king. And he had set out a plan to annihilate all the Jews in Persia. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai, Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. You see, Haman had a problem. He wanted everybody to bow to him. Mordecai would not, because Mordecai knew that if he bowed, that meant idolatry. And so the men at the gate kept saying, well, you know, why don't you just bow? It's not going to hurt. He says, I can't. I'm a Jew. That's idolatry. And so word got out now. Mordecai is a Jew. And so now Haman says, I won't only wipe him out, I'm going to wipe out all of his people. He had learned all that had happened. He was not only affected mentally, not only emotionally, but equally physically. The evidence is there. He tore his clothes and put sackcloth and ashes in verse 1. He cried out with a lamentable cry of bitterness. He expressed it publicly. He wasn't an undercover Jew anymore. The word was out. 
But see, God uses persecution to draw him to himself. Through this very thing, he turned to God to what? To pray. Though prayer is never mentioned in the book of Esther, and it is one of the major reasons why critics say it is not an inspired book, rubbish to that. Prayer is implied all through the book. For Jews never did this outward manifestation without including prayer. And so who is really Mordecai turning to? He's turning to God. He realizes that he can no longer live within that control environment which he thought so secure. God had brought him to a point that turned him to him. God will bring you and myself to whatever extent he needs to, to turn you to him. In verse 4 through 9, it says that so Esther's maid and eunuch came and told her and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hattach, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hattach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given to Sh at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplications to him and plead before him for her people. So Hattach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Esther inquires as to the nature of the lamentation in verses 5 and 6. And Mordecai declares the problem and the need in verse 7 and 9. He tells of the evil man Haman and his plan to destroy all the Jews in verse 7. He gives a copy of that decree which he had written up himself and sealed with the ring that the king had given him so that nothing had to go through the king. He had the power of the king. And then at the end of verse 8, we have Mordecai's plea for Esther to intercede. God uses persecution to unite his people together. But not only that, but he uses persecution to disturb the saints' comfort. Verses 10 and 12. Then Esther spoke to Hattach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king, who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds up the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself had not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. God uses persecution to disturb the saints' comfort. Esther was in the palace. She had spent a whole year in perfume and oils. <laughs> a time when she didn't know what was going to happen. But finally she was declared queen. It's been years she's been in there having the best of life. Anything she wanted. All of a sudden, her comfort is disturbed. And so Esther can see only but objections. 
She sees only the obstacles. Whenever God disrupts my comfort, all I can see is the obstacles. All I can see is how it's going to affect me. That's what comfort does. First, she observed her objection is no person can approach the king unless he has been petitioned because there's only one law and one law for everybody, and that is death. Secondly, only his scepter can save you. If he raises it up, that means he gives you grace and you can enter in before him. But you take a chance. Third, the king had not called Esther for 30 days. Though all of these observations were true, they all have the emphasis on what it's going to cost her. <laughs> Isn't it funny? That's always where we put the emphasis. What it's going to cost me. Hoping that as I share this, the person will say, well, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And I can walk away saying, Phew, thank God. No, thank Satan. Thank your flesh, but don't thank God. Comfort always causes us to center on self. That's why I believe the church in the West is the weakest in the world. Comfort always causes us to see the difficulty of the situation and not the possibility in God. God uses persecution to disturb our comfort. Very much so. But God equally uses persecution to prepare his vessels. Verses 13 through 17. Then Mordecai told him to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from, for the Jews from another place. But you and your family's house will perish, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told him to return this answer to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Then Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. God uses persecution to prepare his vessels. Look at Mordecai's proclamation of warning to Esther, verses 13 and 14. First, don't think in your heart. Interesting, he didn't say don't think in your brain. Don't think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. The stern conviction that persecution comes to all of God's people sooner or later is just a matter of time. It's like the flood of Noah. Those animals that could climb to the highest peaks could escape it a little longer. But sooner or later, it reached them also. And so he gives her something to think about. Remember, no one knows she's a Jew. She's in comfort. She's the king's wife. Why should she stick her neck out? 
Second, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. I want you to not lose sight of this. Mordecai, though he was asking Esther to intercede, he was not depending on Esther for deliverance. He had turned his heart to God. And there again we have that mysterious blend of divine and human, which I do not understand, but I see throughout the scriptures, that God in his providence works all things together for good. And he uses people, yet it is God who is working. And yet he works it out in such a way that he never violates my free will. I don't understand that. I only understand that that's what I read. His dependency was on God, not man. God help us if we depend on man. God help you if you are depending on me. You need a lot more help. You need to turn and depend upon Jesus Christ for everything. And then be open for God working through the people of God. But our dependency is on God himself. Third, he says, you will perish. What an awesome proclamation. You will perish. And fourth, and don't miss it, this is the key to the entire book of Esther. This is the key verse. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's workmanship, his handiwork, in Christ Jesus unto good work. These works were prepared for us to walk in them before the foundations of the world. What if God has prepared you for such a time and such a place, and because you are so caught up with your own comfort, you miss it? Are you willing to sacrifice that? Can you see the, the, the subtlety of our comfort to blind us from our responsibility, from our privilege? I think Mordecai was a very wise man. Was he putting all his eggs in one basket, Esther? No. His very cry is a warning to Esther lest she miss that opportunity that God had prepared for her. Now Esther's respond in verses 15 through 17. First, go. Gather all the Jews in Shushan to fast for me for three days. Prayer is definitely implied here again. You cannot miss it. And so she responds. How? Was she forced? Was she threatened? No. What did Mordecai do? He gave her truth, absolute truth, not situational truth, not temporary truth that we have today in the world through philosophies and sociology and anthropology and different things like that, but absolute truth, the Word of God. And it was the Word of God that pierced her heart and convicted her heart to willingly yield to the purposes of God without violating her free will. That's the goodness of God. Go. 
gather all the Jews and have them pray and fast for me. Secondly, she and her maids would equally fast likewise. And so you see that oneness here. You see that preparation for that vessel through persecution. And then third, she says, I will go. And if I perish, I perish. There is the bottom line that God wants to bring you and myself to every day of our lives. If I perish, I perish. Did we not die in Christ when we accepted him? Did we not say, your will be done and not mine? Something we forget. If I died in Christ, why am I consistently trying to live for myself? If I perish, I perish. That's the bottom line. And God uses persecution to prepare his vessels. Never forcing them against their will, but always putting them in a position to where they are willing to do his will. <laughs> God's wisdom. Again, from the very mouth of those suffering saints in China, one says, in men's eyes, this is an unfortunate happening. But for Christians, it is like a rich banquet. These lessons cannot be learned from books. And this sweetness is not usually tasted by men. This rich life does not exist in a comfortable environment where there is no cross, there is no crown. If the spices are not refined to become oil, the fragrance of the perfume cannot flow forth, and if grapes are not crushed in the vat, they will not become wine. Dear brethren, these saints who have gone down into the furnace, far from being harmed, have, been, have had their faces glorified and their spirits filled with power, with greater authority to preach the word and a far more abundant life. The Lord will have the final victory over their bodies. Mm. I'm almost envious of them. Now, how does this apply to all of us? I mean, certainly, are we calling out that you go out and be persecuted to demonstrate your spirituality? No. If God wants you to be persecuted, you're not going to have any problem being persecuted. Whether you like it or not, you will be persecuted. First of all, God will use persecution to draw me to himself. Why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There is an aspect that you and I lack in, and that's persecution. Paul is praying there that he experienced Christ to the fullest in his suffering because he had to depend on the power of the resurrection. That passage in Philippians 3, 10, and 11 at times is used to speak of the resurrection afterwards. It is not. It is speaking about experiencing the power of the resurrection from the dead. The word from is ek, out from, now. 
to experience the resurrected power now. Experiencing and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's what God desires to bring to my life through persecution. Secondly, God will use persecution to unite me with his people. Recognizing the privilege and the responsibility to come alongside them. You remember Paul, he was in 2 Timothy 4.9, ready to be offered up as a drink offering. And what does he tell Timothy? Come quickly. <laughs> All had forsaken Paul. And yet he says, the Lord alone has stood by my side. But persecution unites the people of God. A common bond. A common sharing. But thirdly, God will use persecution to disturb the saints' comfort. Why? To reach out to others. Remember Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2? He's mentioned throughout the epistle. He had given up his comfort at Philippi. And he went to minister to the needs of Paul in prison. Such a servant was he. That he jeopardized his own life and he almost died while being with Paul. And Paul commended him as a fellow prisoner, a fellow laborer, a minister to be looked up to and to follow. But fourthly, God will use persecution to prepare me as his vessel, even as Jesus told Paul on the road to Damascus that he was a chosen vessel. And that God would show him how many things he was to suffer for his name's sake. Now the question at this point is, what have you been called for? And what have you been brought into the kingdom for? Will you miss it? What if God has called you simply to be one to come and just pray in the pew? Are you going to miss it? What if God has raised you up to be a simple, a bright light in your neighborhood to help those in your neighborhood? What if God has called you simply to come and to serve in the house of God, to clean toilets, to sweep, and to just care for the grounds? Will you miss it? God is strange the way he works. He uses persecution for his glory. And persecution is included in the call of the believer. This is just one of many such illustrations in the scriptures. And in the backdrop of this persecution, God is at work. The purest and the most powerful work that has ever been done in the church has always been through persecution. The least effective has always been when the church has been in comfort. Always. And I think that we can vouch for that in the United States. I pray that God give us wisdom not to walk out condemned, not to walk out with a martyr's complex, but to turn our face to God and say, Lord, what would you have your servant to do today? Pastor Xavier Reed.
grace, illustrating divine purposes in the persecution of the saints. More simple truths drawn from the Old Testament book of Esther. And you can pick up your own copy of today's study, Blessings Out of Buffetings. It's available, as usual, on CD for just $4. And with it, we'll be including everything Pastor Xavier taught the last time we were together as well. Once again, the title to ask for is Blessings Out of Buffetings. Or you could simply mention today's date so we can get that out to you right away. And you can request your copy by writing Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please don't forget to tell us the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This is one way we can gauge the impact of this outreach. And then join us for more Simple Truths right here next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com